Our Old Testament lesson this morning is going to come from the prophet Micah. From Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. What shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? With a calf a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told thee, O mortal, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Last week, uh, we started a series talking about um, this passage here, um, this great passage. Micah 6, 8 is one of those beloved passages of Scripture. I know for some of you here, it's your favorite verse in all the Bible. It's just a wonderful passage and a great reminder. Uh, and the reason why we're looking at Micah 6, 8, these three weeks post-Easter, is because if you remember during Lent, we talked about correct doctrine, what it is that we believe. The, the word for correct doctrine, believing the right things, is called orthodoxy. In the church, it's called to orthodoxy. Uh, the Bible talks a lot in believing in the faith handed down to us by the apostles. So thus we say the Apostles' Creed, which is summation, which is a summation of the doctrine of the early church fathers. The Nicene Creed is another beautiful example of that. So we've talked a lot about orthodoxy. And orthodoxy is incredibly important. It's incredibly important. One of my favorite books in seminary was by Dr. Dr. Nick had us read a book called The Cruelty of Heresy. And it talked about how all the different things that we can believe that are wrong, how these things actually wind up being hurtful to us, and the importance of correct belief. So I'm a, I'm a huge fan of correct doctrine. Good, good, solid, correct doctrine is very important. Very important. But it doesn't save you. Because we're saved by Jesus. We're not saved by our doctrine. Because John Wesley once said, you can be as orthodox as the devil and just as righteous. Because guess what? The devil believes right. I mean, the, the, James says, you believe that God is one, you do well. The devil believes. So as important as correct doctrine is, and as important as correct doctrine is in our life to give us a, a good, solid, reliable, great life, correct doctrine doesn't save us. Jesus saves us. But here's the thing. Whenever we are saved by Jesus, the question then becomes, well, what does that mean? So our orthodoxy, our correct doctrine, must produce orthopraxy, which is correct living. Our right doctrine must produce right living. Or else we're in the same boat as the devil, who has correct doctrine. But uh, last I checked, he ain't really living too good. So, um, you know, maybe he's changed his ways. I don't know, you know, but uh, I kind of doubt it. So correct living. So then the question then becomes, well, what does that look like? What does it mean to live, correct, to live correctly? What does it look like for us to live correct life, a correct, to practice correct living? That's what I think Micah 6, 8 answers. And it starts off, I love the way the prophet, the prophet starts off by saying, God, it, 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 it's um, last week when I preached an intersection, I kind of recounted how um, to me this is um, his conversation with God. It's much like my conversation with our 17-year-old cat who every morning wakes us up at some insane hour because he's old and crazy and mean. And he just comes in and yells at us. Like, just comes, literally, 
Like, he, when he's outside the house and he yells at us, we're worried we're going to get a letter, letter, Charles, a letter from our HOA. Like, I'm worried about it. He's so loud. My neighbors have to be concerned about him. So we let him in, and he continues to yell at us. And then I have the conversation with him at 5 in the morning, what do you want? And he yells at me. And then I think, I'm talking to a cat. What is wrong with me? This is on me, not on him. So Micah is basically asking God, God, what do you want? You know, what if I do, if I bring you a thousand oils, is that a good enough? If I bring you this young calf, is that good enough? What, what do you want, God? Tell me what you want and I will then do it. And then transitions to verse eight. He has shown thee, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of thee. But to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. If you'll notice, I kind of quote that out of the King James because the King James is what's stuck in my head. He has shown the old man what is good and what the Lord requires of thee. To do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Mercy, to do justice is basically to uh, love your neighbors so much that you're willing to do every, whatever it is that you can do to make sure your neighbors have what they need to experience the fullness of God. As Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, somebody asks for your coat, you give him your cloak too. Make you walk, walk some additional miles. To want what's best for your neighbor. Not because you have to, or not because somebody's making you, but because you so radically love your neighbor that you want your neighbor to know the fullness of God, both in this life and in the life that is to come. And justice is one of those words I I said last week, I know social justice and justice is a word and a phrase that becomes, oh, no, that's political. I'm not talking about political. I'm talking about the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus said to love your enemies, to bless those who curse you. And if someone lacks a coat, give, it, give them yours. Someone, someone acts love to eat, give them yours. Share, give. So radically love your neighbor, because, all y'all, the Bible says that God wishes for all to be saved. But the Bible says. And so my greatest desire is to use whatever influence or power or love or whatever God's given me to make sure that everyone that I meet knows Jesus Christ as Lord. That's all, that's all I want. If I, if I draw my last breath and wake up in, on the other side of Jordan and I know that I've done all that I can do to help folks love Jesus, then I'm pretty happy with how things turned out. So I want my neighbor, justice is me so radically loving my neighbor as Christ does that I'm willing to do all that I can in my power to help them know the fullness of God in this life and in the life that is to come. That's what it means to do justice. He has shown the old man what is good, what the Lord requires of thee. To do justice, to radically love our neighbors to the point that we make sure that we're serving them, caring for them, loving for them, helping them, pointing them to Jesus, both with our words and with our actions. To do justice. Today, to love mercy. This is, the Bible is a, is a, um, a beautiful gift to us from God. There are a lot. Of, I think of. Um, I think of. Um, Doc Quick was the longtime professor of Christian uh, theology and Baptist life at Mississippi College. If you've met a Baptist preacher in the state of Mississippi that went to Mississippi College, he's probably been taught by Doc Quick. Doc Quick was an institution at MC. 
and I, I don't remember a whole lot from his classes, but one thing I, I remember from Doc, Doc Quick was this. He said, Doc Quick said, the worst phrase in the English language is God forsaken. Because to think that someone has gone to the, so far that God would have forsaken them is just a painful and hurtful thing. And then, of course, he added, he said, the only way someone becomes God forsaken is if someone has given up on God. Because God will never give up on them. The reason why blasphemy is unforgivable is because you won't ask forgiveness. In my ministry, I've had folks come to me and say, oh, preacher, I think I've blasphemed. And I'll always say, well, do you feel bad about it? And they will say, well, yeah. I'm like, well, then you hadn't done it. If you feel bad about it, you hadn't done it. The reason why blasphemy is unforgivable is because you've gone so far that you won't ask forgiveness. You know how I know that? Guess in the Bible who said he blasphemed? Paul. One of his letters, Paul says he's uttered blasphemies, but he has forgiveness. So he really had not blasphemed. So God forsaken is a terrible word. I think the word that the NRSV translates kindness, that many other translations translate mercy, might be the most beautiful word in all the Bible. The word, the word kindness, love, it, it has a variety of, of it, it, our, our language doesn't, English does not quite perfectly capture what this word's trying to communicate to us. Um, the, the word in Hebrew is hasid, the, the hasid of God, the kindness of God. It's, it's, it's a kindness rooted in loyalty, rooted in mercy, rooted in the redemptive power. This word is a redemptive word. It really is a word of redemption. Um, redemption through God's mercy and kindness and desire to redeem us. And the greatest example of how this word is played out in Scripture is the story of Ruth. Ruth is, Ruth is one of the great books in the Bible, in my opinion. Ruth is just a powerful, beautiful book. Because here's the thing with Ruth. If you remember the story of Ruth, it starts off, with Ruth, well, it starts off with Naomi and her husband going to Moab because the famine in Israel is so bad. And then, um, and then in Moab, she allows her three, they allow their three sons to marry three Moabite women. That may sound a little weird to you. Here's what I want you to understand how bad the conditions must have been for Naomi and her husband. Scripture strictly forbids black and white Israelites to have any association with the Moabites. The Moabites are one of the most condemned groups in all the scriptures. Because at one point in the Old Testament, when the Israelites needed help, the Moabites refused to help them. So the Moabites, I mean, the, the, the Levitical law strictly forbids Jewish individuals forgetting marrying one of them. You're not even supposed to talk to them. They're worse than Samaritans in the New Testament. The Moabites are, the, are like the group that they are forbidden to be around. So how bad must it have been for Naomi and her husband to go to Moab for help? How bad must it have been for Naomi and her husband to allow their three sons to marry three Moabite women? I don't know a worse place you could be in than to have that happen. And then, of course, what happens is, Ruth, is Naomi's husband dies and her three sons die. And she tells her daughters-in-law, 
go back to your people. I have no more sons for you to marry. Go back to your people. And that's when Ruth has that beautiful passage. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will God, lodge. Your people will be your, my people and your God will be my God. And so that right there, Ruth is showing to Naomi, Hesed, Hesed. She's showing Naomi kindness, loyal kindness, what Psalm 63 called steadfast love. She is showing a kindness and a loyalty to Naomi in the midst of their great tragedy, in the midst of their great love. So what's interesting to me, they go back to Bethlehem, where Naomi's from, and all the women from town come out to see Naomi. And they come out, oh, they all celebrate, Naomi's back, Naomi's back, Naomi's back. And Naomi says, no, 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 no. Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. Mara is the Hebrew word for bitterness. Naomi says, no, do not call me Naomi. Because God has dealt so bitterly with me that I'm bitter. And I'm angry. Because God first made me go to the hated Moabites. Then God has my three sons killed. How dare you call me Naomi. For I am bitter at what God has done to me. That's where Naomi is when the story starts. But Ruth had already showed her some hesed, some steadfast love, some kindness, some loyalty. Later, Boaz shows Ruth hesed. He shows her kindness by letting her glean from his field. Later, Ruth shows Boaz the same kindness by honoring him. And in the end, this Moabite woman, Ruth, marries Boaz. And she has a grandson you may have heard of. Um, I think his name's David or something like that. I think he's a bit player in Scripture. She's the grandmother of David. This Moabite who has no place in the kingdom now becomes in the line not just of David, but in the line of Jesus. The kindness of Boaz redeems Ruth. The kindness of Ruth redeems Boaz. But here is the beautiful thing. When you read the end of Ruth, you know who in the end is happy and rejoicing with her grandchildren? Naomi. I think Ruth is not just the story of, Naomi, of Ruth's inclusion in the family of God. I think it's not just Boaz's inclusion of Ruth. But I think ultimately Ruth is the story of the redemption of Naomi. Naomi is redeemed. Naomi, who has had everything taken from her, who emerges bitter. In the end of Ruth is laughing and happy because she has been redeemed by the Hesed of Ruth and of Boaz and of God. That's what the, the word here to love kindness is not talking about being nice, y'all. I could be not. My mama raised me to be nice, y'all, even if I don't like you. Come on, we're Southerners. We're nice people. In fact, let's be honest here. 
If somebody really, 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 really makes you mad, you're going to do one or two things, aren't you? You're going to be really mean to them back in return, or you're going to go extra nice. Sometimes we use our kindness as a weapon. Come on, dog. Maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm the only one. But sometimes the more hateful you are to me, the nicer I'm going to be to you because I want you to feel bad. I want you to feel bad when you're being so mean to me that eventually my kindness is just a front. It'd probably be a lot nicer for me just to punch you in the face. Amen? Come on, y'all. We can be honest with each other here. That's not, that's not Hesed. <laughs> that is not what Amos is, I mean, Micah is talking about. He's talking about us living out the loving loyalty, the loving kindness, the redemptive kindness of God. Because that's what God's kindness can do, y'all. God's kindness can redeem and restore what sin has taken. Because that's what it did to Naomi. The fall and all the pain she had gone through took so much from her to where she was exhausted and in kindness. God's mercy, God's loyalty, God's love, God's grace redeemed her. To love kindness is to love redemption. To love redemption. To love the redemption of God both in my life and in your life. And but here, as Dr. Bryant would say, but therein lies the rub. For me, to love redemption means I can't give up. For me to love God's redemption in other people means I can't give up on other people. No matter how mean and hateful they may be to me. No matter how awful they may be to be, no matter, I'm going to whisper this so we don't really hear it, no matter even if they have different politics than I do, I know. Because like I said last week, my great fear, y'all, is we're being shaped more by the news we watch than we are by the scriptures we read. We're more shaped now by Fox News or CNN, or MSNBC, than we are by God's word. And one day the things of this earth will pass away, because my God said one day he's going to bring a new heaven and a new earth, and that all of this is going to pass away. This present American moment is going to pass away. This cultural moment is going to pass away. Where we're living right now is going to pass away. And a new heaven and a new earth will come and redeem and restore all that God has. And that means I can't give up on people, even if I don't like them. Even if I disagree with them. Even if they disagree with me. Because remember who the Israelites were strictly forbidden from associating with? The Moabites. And who becomes engrafted into the story of God's redemption through Naomi and through Boaz and through Jesus and through David, but Ruth the Moabite. I can't give up on people. I can't. 
Because God's loving kindness, God's steadfast love, God's mercy has not given up on them. And I believe in a God of redemption. I believe in a God of restoration. I believe in a God of hope and of mercy and of joy and of peace and of Jesus Christ who died for the sins of the world. God's loving kindness is a redemptive act. He has shown thee, O man, what is good, what the Lord requires of thee, but to do justice and to love mercy. To love Hesed. To love his steadfast love. To love his mercy. That means we can't give up on them. By the way, it also means we can't give up on ourselves. Because sometimes we give up on ourselves, y'all. Sometimes we think that we've done too much or gone too far, far or made the same mistake one too many times. Sometimes we think, well, surely this time I've outsinned God's mercy. Well, surely this time I've outsinned God's grace. Well, surely this time I've outsinned God's hesed. I know this time I've done it and I cannot experience that kindness again. That's not the case, y'all. If God's going to try to redeem them, God's going to try to redeem you too. There's nothing, no one, that God's loyal kindness, God's love, God's mercy will not seek to renew or restore. God redeems all. It's our job to get to play along with that, y'all. It's our job to get to know that, to experience that. God is a God of redemption and of second chances and of fifth chances and of 17th chances and of 54th chances. Because God is a God of steadfast love. God is a God of loyalty. And that's a powerful thing, isn't it? We live in a world where everything is transactional. We live in a world where you're a value till you're no longer a value. We live in a world where you have usefulness until your usefulness is used up. But that's not the way it works with God. God is not a God of this world. God is not a God of this culture. And God is not a God of this moment. God is a God of Hesed. God is a God of loyal and of loving kindness. The kind of kindness that redeems. And that's what we as the church should be about, y'all. A place of redemption, a place of hope, a place of resurrection. A place where the dead bones can be brought back to life, where the bitter heart can be softened and changed, where the lion and the lamb can live together, as Jesus talks about, as Isaiah talks about, a place where hope and restoration and redemption is possible. 
It's possible for them outside the walls of this church. It's possible within my very own heart. He has shown thee, O man, what is good, what the Lord requires of thee. But to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. By the grace of God, may it be so. Let's pray.